Section 7 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Ken Campbell. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 7. Blood Will Tell. As Webb had predicted, even before nine o'clock came prompt, spirited response from Laramie, where the colonel had ordered the four troops to prepare for instant march, and had bidden the infantry to be ready for any duty the general might order. From Omaha, department headquarters, almost on the heels of the Laramie wire, came cheery word from their gallant chief. Coming to join you. Noon train today. Cheyenne, one thirty tomorrow. Your action in sending Ray's troop approved. Hold others in readiness to move at moment's notice. Wire further news, North Platte, Sydney, or Cheyenne to beat me. So the note of preparation was joyous throughout the barracks on the eastward side and mournful among the married quarters elsewhere. But even through the blinding tears with which so many loving women wrought, packing the field and mess kits of soldier husbands whose duties kept them with their men at barracks or stables, there were some at least who were quick to see that matters of unusual moment called certain of the major's staunchest henchmen to the office, and that grave and earnest consultation was being held, from which men came with somber faces and close, sealed lips. First to note these indications was the indomitable helpmate of old Wilkins, the post-quartermaster. She had no dread of his account for rheumatism and routine duties as the official in charge of Uncle Sam's huge stack of stores and supplies exempted her liege from duty in the field, and even while lending a helping hand where some young wife and mother seemed dazed and broken by the sudden called arms, she kept eyes and ears alert as ever, and was speedily confiding to first one household, then another, her conviction that there was a big sensation bundled up in the bosom of the post commander and his cronies and she knew she said it was something about field everybody of course was aware by eight o'clock that field had gone with ray and while no officer presumed to ask if it was because ray or field had applied for the detail no woman would have been restrained therefrom by any fear of webb well he realized this fact and dodging the first that sought to waylay him on the walk, he had later entrenched himself, as it were, in his office, where Dade, Blake, and the old post-surgeon had sat with him in solemn conclave, while Bill Hay brought his clerk, barkeeper, storekeeper, Pete, the general utility man, and even Crapod, the half-breed, to swear in succession. They had no idea who could have tampered with either the safe or the stables. Closely had they been cross-examined, and going away in turn, they told of the nature of the cross-examination, yet to no one of their number had been made known what had occurred to cause such close questioning. He had been forbidden to speak of it, even to his household. The officer of the day were sworn to secrecy. Neither Wilkins nor the acting adjutant was closeted with the counsel, and neither, therefore, could do more than guess at the facts. Yet somebody knew. In part, at least, the trend of suspicion was at once apparent to Webb and his counselors when, about nine o'clock, he took Blake and Dade to see those significant bar-shoe hoof prints. Every one of them had disappeared. "'By Job,' said Webb, "'I know now I should have sent a sentry with orders to let no man walk or ride about here. 
See? He used his foot to smear this, and this, and here again. There, in a dozen places, were signs of old Indian trailers read as they would read any open book, places where, pivoting on the heel, a heavy foot is crushed right and left into yielding soil of the roadway, making concentric circular grooves and ridges of sandy earth, where, earlier in the morning, Dan's and Harney's dainty hoof-prints were the only new impressions. For nearly fifty yards had this obliterating process been carried on, and in a dozen spots until the road dipped over the rounded edge and, hard and firm now, went winding down to the flats. Here Webb and Dade and Hay returned, while Blake meandered on, moosing over what he had been told. "'It's a government heel, not a cowboy's,' had Hay said, hopefully the print of that pivoting lump of leather. "'That gives no clue of the wearer,' answered Blake. "'Our men often sell their new boots or give their old ones to these hanger-ons about the post. So far as I am concerned, the care of which the print had been erased is proof to me that the Major saw just what he said. Somebody about Hay's place was mighty anxious to cover his tracks.' But a dozen somebodies, besides the stableman, hung there at all hours of the day, infesting the broad veranda and barroom and stores, striving to barter the skin of a coyote, skunk, or beaver, or, when they had nothing to sell, pleading for an unearned drink. Half a dozen of these furtive, beetle-browed, swathy sons of the prairie lounged there now, as the elder officers and the trader returned, while Blake went on his way exploring. With downcast eyes, he followed the road to and across a sandy water course in the low ground, and there, in two or three places, found the fresh imprint of that same bar shoe, just as described by Webb. Then, with long, swift strides, he came stalking up the hill again, passing the watchful eyes about the corral without a stop, and only checking speed as he neared the homestead of the Hayes, where once again he became engrossed in studying the road and the hard pathway at the side. Something that he saw, or fancied that he saw, perhaps a dozen yards from the trader's gate, induced him to stop, scrutinize, turn, and, with searching eyes, to cross diagonally the road in the direction of the stables, then again to retrace his steps and return to the eastward side. Just as he concluded his search, and once more went briskly on his way, a blithe voice hailed him from an upper window, and the radiant face and gleaming white teeth of Nanette Flower appeared between the opening blinds. One might have said he expected both the sight and question. "'Lost anything, Captain Blake?' Uh, "'Nothing but a little time, Miss Flower,' was the prompt reply, as without a pause the tall captain, raising his forge cap, pushed swiftly on. "'But I found something,' muttered he to himself between his set teeth, and within five minutes more was again closeted with the post commander. "'You saw it?' asked Webb. "'Yes, three or four places down in the Arraro. More than that, where's Hay?' He broke off suddenly, for voices were sounding in the adjoining room. "'Here with Dade and the doctor.' "'Then—' But Blake got no farther. Breathless and eager, little Sandy Ray came bounding through the hallway into the presence of the officers. He could hardly— gasp his news. "'Major, you told me to keep watch and let you know. There's a courier coming hard. Mother saw him, too, through the spyglass. She said they see him, too, at Strabers, and she's afraid.' "'Right,' cried Webb, 
Quick, Blake, rush out a half a dozen men to meet him. Those devils may indeed cut him off. Thank you, my little man, he added, bending down and patting the dark curly head, as Blake went bounding away. Thank you, Sandy. I'll come at once to the bluff. We'll save him. Never you fear. In less than no time, one might say, all Fort Frayne seemed hurrying to the northward bluff. The sight of tall Captain Blake bounding like a greyhound towards his troop barracks, and shouting for his first sergeant, of Major Webb almost running across the parade towards the flagstaff, of Sandy rushing back to his post at the telescope, of the adjutant and officer of the day tearing away towards the stables, where many of the men were now at work, were signs that told unerringly of something stirring, probably across the plat. As luck would have it, in anticipation of orders to move, the troop horses had not been set out to graze, and were still in the sunshiny corrals, and long before the news was fully voiced through officer's row, Blake and six of his men were in saddle, and darting away for the ford, carbines advanced the instant they struck the opposite bank. From the bluff Webb had shouted his instructions. We could see him a moment ago. For half a dozen field glasses were already brought to bear. Six miles out, far east of the road. Feel well out to your left, and head off any of Strober's people. Three of them have been seen galloping out already. Aye, aye, sir, came the answering shout as Blake whirled and tore away after his men. There had been a time in his distant past when the Navy, not the Army, was his ambition, and he still retained some of the ways of the sea. Just as Webb feared, some of Straber's young warriors had been left behind, and their eagle-eyed lookout had sighted the far-distant courier almost as soon as Sandy's famous telescope. Now they were hastening to head him off. But he seemed to have totally vanished, level as appeared the northward prairie from the commanding height on which stood the throng of eager watchers. It was, in reality, a low, rolling surface, like some lazily heaving sea that had become suddenly solidified. Long, broad, shallow dips or basins lay between broad, wide, far-extending, yet slight upheavals. Through the shallows turned and twisted dozens of dry rarrows, all gradually trending toward the Platte, the drainage system of the frontier. Five miles out began the ascent to the taller divides, and ridges that gradually, and with many an intervening dip, rose to the watershed between the Platte and the score of tiny tributaries that united to form the South Cheyenne. It was over Moccasin, or Ten Mile Ridge, as it was often called, and close to the now-abandoned stage road, Ray's daring little command had disappeared from view towards eight o'clock. It was at least two, possibly three miles east of the stage road, that the solitary courier had first been sighted, and when later seen by the Major and certain others of the swift-gathering spectators, he was heading for Frayne, though still far east of the high road. And now Mrs. Ray on the north piazza, with Webb by her side, and Nanny Blake, Mrs. Dade, and Esther in close attendance, was briefly telling the Major what she had seen upstream. One glance through Sandy's glass had told her the little fellow had not watched in vain. Then, with a ready binocular, she had turned to the Indian encampment up the Platte, and almost instantly saw signs of commotion, squaws and children running about, ponies running away, and Indian boys pursuing. Then, one after another, three Indians, warriors presumably, had lashed away northward, and she had sent Sandy on the run to tell the Major. 
even while keeping watch on the threatening three until they shot behind a long, low ridge that stretched southward from the foothills. Beyond doubt, they were off in the hopes of begging the solitary horsemen, speeding with a warning of some kind for the shelter of Fort Frayne. By this time, there must have been nearly two hundred men, women, and children lining the crest of the bluff, and speaking in low, tense voices when they spoke at all, and straining their eyes for the next sight of the coming courier or the swift dash of the intercepting Sioux, while out now and riding at a gallop, Blake and his half-dozen, wildly separating so as to cover much of the ground, were still in view, and Dade and his officers breathed more freely. "'See what a distance those beggars of Strabers will have to ride,' said the veteran captain to the little group about him. "'They dare not cross that ridge short of three miles out. It's my belief they'll see Blake and never cross at all.' Then uprose a sudden shout. "'There he is! There he comes! See! See!' And fifty hands pointed eagerly northward, where a little black dot had suddenly popped into view out of some friendly winding watercourse four miles still away, at least count, and far to the right and front of Blake's easternmost trooper. Every glass was instantly brought to bear upon the swiftly coming rider, Sandy's shrill young voice ringing out from the upper window. "'It isn't one of Papa's men. His horse is gray.' Who then could it be, and what could it mean, this coming of a strange courier from a direction so far to the east of the traveled road? Another moment, and up rose another shout. Look, there they are, Sue for certain! And from behind the little knob or knoll of the meridian ridge, three other black dots had swept into view, and were shooting eastward down the gradual slope. Another moment, and they were swallowed up behind still another low divide. But in that moment they had seen and been seen by the westernmost of Blake's men, and now, one after another, as a signal swept from the left, the seven swerved. Their line of direction had been west of north. Now, riding like mad, they veered to the northeast, and a grand race was on between the hidden three and the would-be rescuers, all headed for that part of the low-rolling prairie where the lone courier might next be expected to come into view. Friends and foes alike, unconscious of the fact that, following one of those crooked arrows with its stiff and precipitous banks, he had been turned from his true course full three-quarters of a mile, and now, with a longer run but a clear field ahead, was steering straight for Frayne. Thus the interests of the onlookers at the bluff became divided. Women with straining eyes gazed at the lonely courier, and then fearfully scanned the ridge line between him and the northward sky praying with white lips for his safety, dreading with sinking hearts that at any moment those savage riders should come darting over the divide and swooping down upon their helpless prey. Men with eyes that snapped and fists that clenched, or fingers that seemed twitching with mad desire to clasp pistol butt or saber hilt, or loud barking carbine ran in sheer nervous frenzy up and down the bluffs, staring only at Blake's far-distant riders, swinging their hats and waving them on, praying only for another sight of the Sioux in front of the envied seven, and craving with all their soldier hearts to share in the fight almost sure to follow. On raised piazza, with pallid face and quivering lips, Esther Dade clung to her mother's side. Mrs. Ray had encircled with her arm the slender waist of Nanny Blake, whose eyes never for an instant quit their gaze, after the swift speeding dots across the distant prairie. 
All her world was there in one tall, vehement horseman. Other troopers, mounting at the stables, had spurred away under Captain Gregg and were splashing through the ford. Other denizens of Fort Frayne, hearing of the excitement, came hurrying to the bluff. Hangers-on from the trader's store and corral, the shopman himself, even the barkeeper in his white jacket and apron, two or three panting, low-muttering half-breeds, their eyes aflame, their teeth gleaming in their excitement, then Hay himself, and with him her dark face almost livid, her hair discolored and lips rigid and almost purple, with deep lines at the corners of her mouth, Nanette Flower. Who that saw could ever forget her as she forced her way through the crowd and stood at the very brink, saying never a word but swiftly focusing her ready glasses. Hardly had she reached the spot when wild, sudden, exultant, a cheer burst fiercely from the lips of the throng. Look, look, by God, they got him, yelled man after man in mad excitement. Three black dots had suddenly swept into view, well to the right of Blake's men, and came whirling down grade straight for the lone courier on the gray. Theirs had been the short side, ours the long diagonal of the race. Theirs was the race, perhaps, but not the prize, for he had turned up far from the expected point. Still they had him, if only, if only those infernal troopers failed to see them. There was their hope, plainly in view of the high bluff at the fort. They were yet hidden by a wave of prairie from sight of the interceptors, still heading for the ridge the warriors had just left behind. Only for a second or two, however, a yell of fierce rejoicing went up from the crowd on the bluff, as the easternmost of Blake's black specks was seen suddenly to check, then to launch out again, no longer to the north, but straight to his right, followed almost immediately by every one of the seven. Then, too, swerved the would-be slayers, in long, graceful circles, away from the wrath to come. And while the unconscious courier still rode, steadily loping toward the desired refuge, Away from the breaks and ravines of the sleeping bear lashed the thwarted Sioux. Away in hopeless stern chase spurred the pursuers. And while women sobbed and laughed and screamed, and men danced and shouted and swore with delight, one dark-faced, livid, fearsome, turned back from the bluff, and Dr. Tracy hastened to the side of his enchantress. Caught in a maze, these words almost hissed between the set of grinding teeth. Seven to three. Shame. End of chapter 7